Welcome to the Speckled Truth Podcast. This is the only show dedicated to the conservation of the trophy trout population from the East Coast to the Gulf Coast. Here, we go below the surface to discuss what happens when science and anglers work together for a cause. Gear up with your host, Captain Chris Bush, a trophy trout purist, leader and educator within the fishing community, as he talks about all things big speckled trout. Get ready for the slimy, salty truth, better known as the speckled truth. Hey everyone, uh, welcome back to the Speckled Truth Podcast. Captain Chris here, joined by Mr. Ralph Phillips, South Carolina legend, sir. Morning. Good morning. How are you, Chris? I'm well. I'm well, sir. Uh, so, thanks for your flexibility. I really do, and your patience. I had to push a little bit this morning uh, to kind of get this in. It's been a little bit crazy with teleworking and kind of working all these things in to our busy schedules, but I appreciate your flexibility, sir. I really do. You're talking to a man, Chris, got seven grandkids and four kids. You got to be flexible and you got to be patient. I promise you. No, I hear you. And that's what they always preach right here in the air force, right? Is flexibility is the key to key to air power. And so I feel like I've lived that for the last 15 years to a T. So, Absolutely. so I really appreciate it. So, um, Mr. Ralph, um, again, South Carolina legend in the Palmetto State, been around for a long time and uh, fishing the, the Charleston area. Is that correct, sir? Yes, sir. It, it is. I started fishing in Charleston in like 1969 when I got out of the military. Came here, and that, that's how I got started fishing the Charleston area. So you're a military man? I was, yes, sir. In the Navy, U.S. Navy. I didn't know that. Yeah. Was, how long did you? How long did you serve? Uh, I was a reservist six years, two years active, and uh, spent most of that time in uh, Westpac in Vietnam. Understand, yes, sir. Hey, I appreciate your your service, sir. Thank you for yours, yes, sir. Yeah, absolutely. No, I appreciate that. So, to for everyone, uh, I know I've known you uh, for some time, a little bit. We've actually collaborated on a few articles, and I'll actually address some of those questions here in the podcast today. But for those who don't know you or not familiar with you, particularly on the East Coast, say our listeners here in the uh, Gulf Coast or down in Texas uh, may or may not have heard of, of you. And so if you don't mind, sir, take a, a second, kind of give people a little bit about your background, where you're from, and uh, how you ended up, and, and basically how you got into targeting trout specifically or fishing. Okay, I'd be glad to, Chris. I appreciate the opportunity to do that. I was, I was young. I was born and raised on a farm, like a lot of us were. Uh, went through, finished high school, went into the military, uh, did, did my tour of duty, and got out. When I did, I, but I'd been fishing all that time. My, my grandfather taught me how to fish when I was like six, seven years old, following him through the swamp. Just always had a passion for it. Uh, if if there was time to, to to do something else, I went fishing. I mean, just always tried to find time to get in the water. And he, he taught me a lot. He, we were bait fishing back in the Little PD in the Lumber River and wading the swamps. And it's just, just I just grew up with it. So when I when I got out of the military and, and came to Charleston, uh, I was a largemouth bass fisherman, like a lot of the saltwater guys are. We uh, I started out fishing for largemouth because that's that's about the only freshwater, about the only thing that I'd done. So anyway, I'm fishing in the Cooper River and I get get a little too close to the harbor for the largemouth. There's a lot of brackish waters and brackish mm-hmm. fish there. And I hooked the fish. I said, I thought it was the biggest bass, the largest bass I'd ever hooked in my life. It turned out to be like a 35-inch redfish. And <laughs> after, after that, I kind of kind of developed. I'm, I'm going to have to learn how to catch these these uh, 
saltwater fish and leave these sweetwater fish alone, let bass guys get them. So I started yes, working on the, you know, using this, this basically the same exact t- tactics we did for largemouth. Texas rig worms, uh, mm-hmm. uh, suspend plugs, top water plugs. And everybody thought I was absolutely crazy with a freshwater bass boat, you know, going into harbor, going down to, and I just, I just kept after it with nothing but freshwater tackle. And, uh, you know, it, it just kind of evolved, Chris. And, and I found out that you, a, a trout is, is pretty much like a largemouth in the way you, you go after it, fish around structure, you fish current, you fish flow. Uh, and, and I just really, really got a passion for this, particularly trying to target large trout. That's uh if I had one fish to go after, that would be it. Then uh, I would spend a period of time, probably, gosh, I guess, 76 to about 83. I got bit by the offshore bug. So okay. I, I, I got in, I got into that and went with uh, fishing. I thought 180 feet was the Gulf Stream when I first started. Then I found mm-hmm. out it was more water and bigger, uh, you know, bigger fish and got bit by the marlin bug. And I, I ch- chased those around for a while. I was very lucky to... To, to catch a, a, a few good fish and didn't have a boat at the time. But once the word got out that, hey, this man might know what he's doing on the big fish, uh, I got offers from several really you know, quality boats and quality people and got to fish a lot of the big rides and fish some of the tournaments. We fished uh, the Carolina uh, series for a while. Got to go down and uh, uh, one of the things I'm really proud of in, in the offshore fishing is went down to Bimini. In 83, we fished the uh, uh, Ernest Hemingway Marlin Tournament, and oh, cool. I had made a plug out of a piece of plastic in a skirt and put a, put a big eye on it, and uh, when the owner of the boat, when he kind of dozed off in the chair, I slipped the plug and put it out and ended up catching a 490 on it, and he won the Daily Calcutta, which is that it was... I'll be damned. <laughs> needless to say, he kept that plug, but that kind of got me interested. Hey, listen, you know, we there's a lot of stuff you can do on your own, and and since then, I just experimented with different things and uh, got to, uh, I, won't say, I won't say that I got completely burnt out with offshore, but when I started, Chris, I was 6'1", and I fished small boats, and now I'm 5'7", so that kind of, <laughs> it, kind of, it, takes, it takes a toll on your back and your joints. So, uh, so I went back and, and started you know, targeting the inshore stuff again and uh, got just, just really got hooked on it. And uh, when I started the business that I'm in with the battery business is my primary source of income. Okay. I, I couldn't make a living, you know, just, just with that. Um, so, uh, I started guiding a little bit and still on the charter boat occasionally and, uh, taking day charters. And I, I would, uh, I'd work, uh, Monday and Tuesday. I try to charter on Wednesday, Saturday, and Sunday. And so it's pretty, pretty much, uh, and pretty much how I got into it. And gradually as the business grew, I, 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 I stopped the charter business, didn't do that anymore. And I mm-hmm. got back into, uh, just, just regular fishing with customers and family and friends. And then, uh, you know, taught my show up, my guy, my boys and the girls we had taught them how to fish. Now I've got grandkids and kind of mm-hmm. come in full circle with it. That's really cool. So, Hey, so bring us back a little bit. So when you were targeting those fish, so when you were freshwater fishing before you went offshore, what? So for me, chronologically, like, what did that look like? So what years was that before you actually then started to kind of transition offshore? That, that started probably when I got, I fished all my life, Chris, but I really right, right. got into, when I got, got back in 67, 68, I, okay. I, I got a little John boat and I ended up to a bass boat and always fished artificials and just, mm-hmm. uh, it was natural to me because I'd always, you know, fish structure, fish around treetops, fish dumps. Yeah. And, 
I learned that the, the flow was was something that was very important. To, as whenever you're fishing, your, you know the rivers primarily. Yeah. There. Fish the Santee Triple Lakes a lot, but basically just use the uh, the same type uh, type pattern. I tried to establish and find a drop, find some relief on the bottom if you're fishing out deep. Uh, yeah. And back in the day, the most effective way was to get out there and drift with a Carolina rig, and you cover a lot of territory, and you know went went through that and and, and really en- enjoyed that part of the fishing. And but then. After that, got got started on the salt, like I told you earlier. Get, went too far down the Cooper River one day. Yeah, so that was from let's say what, like mid sixties to the mid seventies. I think you yeah. said 76, 77 so, is when you were. Yeah, so about that's about the time I got got started and in, really interested in the salt and the, and the big know, game, big game stuff. And the, I got you. Okay, and then you transitioned back into the inshore world. Out of the big game world, what in the late eighties? Eighty nine, ninety, along in there. Okay, fished a little, but you know, I, 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 I guess I was amphibious. I fished both, you know, offshore and inshore some. Yeah. So the reason I wanted to ask you that, Mister Ralph, is in, especially in terms of like that chronological order, is to understand kind of what that time frame was. You know, in terms of using a lot of artificial lures, and so doing a little pre-show research, looking back. Um, I believe the state record in Carolina was caught in 1976. Do you recall that fish being caught on the coast at, during that time? I think yes, it was 1113, right? Yes, and it was caught up, I think, if I remember correct, Chris, up at Merle's Inlet. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. so it wasn't in the Charleston area. No, it wasn't in Charleston. A, a friend of ours, uh, uh, Miles, uh, Miles Hankel, had an 11-2 for a long time. He caught out at the jetties. I think no I think that was about the same period. And uh, the the guy that had that broke the record up in Merle's Inlet, and you got to understand this goes back from memory, so it may it may be you know. But the way I remember, it, he, he caught he, he caught one fish that day. Uh, he was a fellow that I knew through a mutual friend. He was fishing in a John boat, uh, fishing with a finger mullet. He had one bite, caught one fish, and that that was the, the state record. And that was it. I'll be damned. Would they all his friend the eleven two? Uh, you said Miles Hankel. Miles Hankel, yes, he's he's yeah. What uh, what he use? What he catch him on? I, I think it was a shrimp out of the jetties. It wasn't artificial. So thing. in the kind of mid to late seventies. Yes, sir. Okay, so it's interesting because kind of going through looking at obviously during that time frame, there was a lot of really large fish, and a majority of it seems like the state records have kind of come during that time. So it's interesting to me that there may be some correlation obviously with the transition from a lot of maybe anglers from the freshwater world coming into the saltwater, maybe kind of exploring more kind of that saltwater kind of fishery. So it's, it's interesting. So I've, I've fished Charleston myself and I told uh, Daniel Nussbaum who was recently on the uh, podcast that Charleston to me is easily one of the most difficult fisheries I've ever fished just because of the, the sheer volume of water coming in and out of that fishery. And so what, if you could describe a little bit about like the Charleston area and the complex for those folks who aren't familiar with that, like describe a little bit about that fishery and what makes it so unique. Well, yeah, I'd be glad to. Uh, Charleston has got three rivers that dump into the city. Charleston is actually on a peninsula 
we got the Ashley River, the Cooper River, and the Wando, and, and all three of these rivers drop into the into the Charleston Harbor. And it, each each one of them is a little is unique in, in the way that we, we go out to fish them. It's a little bit different. I think probably the less pressure of anything is on the Ashley River, which which runs up into Somerville and up through Dorchester County. That probably gets the, the, the least amount of fishing. Uh, and I don't know what the runoff, it's, uh, you have to be particularly uh, mindful of the color, the clarity of the water. That was, was one thing that I, that I learned over the years, that trout, they, they don't particularly like muddy water. You try to find the clarity of the water. So we, we get a lot of runoff from the upstate. So you have to kind of plan that around when you're going to fish. And uh, over on the Cooper River, we, uh, we've got a, a power plant up in Monk's Corner. And, and they run, and when they start running the, uh, running the hydros, it can muddy up. You can you can get where you got a five foot tide, and you only get like a foot of tide change if they're running the hydros. And the Wando is usually our cleanest and clearest because it, there's nothing that's, that's actually dumping into it. And that's uh, and learning when to go up the river, particularly not targeting trout. We're talking about if we get a lot of rain, a lot of runoff, uh, the salinity of the water. Uh, you, you get a lot of rain, a lot of runoff in the upstate. Fish move down toward the harbor. They move back toward the harbor. And for somebody coming in for one day, you need to hire a guide or hire some local because you got to have that knowledge whether you want to fish the harbor or the near shore or whether if you got a few days without rain or fresh water, you go up the river to fish, go up there. Yep. That, that really makes it unique. And, and we got anything from 50 feet of water to fish uh, to 12 inches of water. And, and we're just really blessed to have so much, uh, you know, opportunity and so much uh, access to good, good places. Yeah, and y'all are very unique. And so, if I had to describe and kind of draw some parallel to me, it would be more like the Pascagoula River in terms of kind of the comparison. Pascagoula obviously got east and west Pascagoula rivers um, flowing from really, real, real inland in Mississippi all the way through the coast. So there's just this tremendous amount of watershed that comes through the that kind of estuary, but on the same token is they have Engel's uh, shipbuilding yard. They have a lot of industrial, uh, I'm sorry, industry, uh, an industrial type environment. And so you can go from like, no kidding, fishing a flat in Bangs Lake or something along those lines to then all of a sudden, no kidding, jigging like 30 feet right along the Engel shipyard, you know? And so it's a, it's very, very unique and it has direct flow to the Gulf. And so there's typically a lot of water in and out especially if there is some watershed and like you were talking about for <clears throat> understanding like salinities and, and the effects of salinity and watershed. Yeah. When you get a lot of rain, those fish will push basically out. And so when you don't, you can fish North of 10 almost all the time, you know, and, and it's particularly in a winter fall, winter time pattern. And obviously once it starts raining, those fish and the fish or men kind of started kind of coming back out to the Gulf. So, very, very unique. But one of the things is they don't have the diurnal six foot swings in tide. And that's kind of the, the big difference. And that for me, moving from Mississippi and, in, you know, to Charleston, understanding that that was the hardest thing for me to pick up was uh, just fishing that volume of water flow. That was crazy. Well, Chris, that, that, that is, you have to pay attention to the tide and a normal tide for us is five, five, five and a half feet. Uh, uh, we got a full moon coming up, I think tonight or tomorrow night. I think that the evening tide is going to be six, it's nine. So, and we get a, get a real fluctuation and, and that's just, you have to adjust to it. You just have to, 
that's 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 what mother nature does that's what that's what you mm-hmm. got so we when we have to uh the the good thing about it is somebody always one of the questions ralph what's your favorite tide what's what, what i said i like any tide that's moving when i'm okay. targeting and i'm targeting trout uh you know if, if it's just a normal tide say a five and a half a five seven incoming or outgoing as long as moving i like moving water to target the trout it makes the bait move uh and it's just to me it's easier to 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 catch a fish when the tide's moving like that. No, and that that makes a tremendous amount of sense. But I don't want to get too far into that because I want to kind of save a little bit more in terms of those questions uh, here in a little bit. I wanted to paint the picture, though, for our listeners of one, not only the time frame in which you fished, but aside from that, the complex that you're fishing. And so I wanted to kind of ask a few questions before we kind of get into, quote unquote, the fishing part of of the podcast. But I was like, do you have like a certain experience that drew you into like just targeting big fish or trout? Just targeting trout, excuse me. Yes. I, you know, like I said, I, I transitioned from a bass fisherman. And, I, you know, I always, I, top water, I absolutely love to fish top water. So this is back in, the, in like 76, 77, 78. I had bass tackle. I didn't, I didn't go out and buy a particularly target, uh, you know, artificial baits for trout. I started catching fish on top. Now, there's nothing to me any more exciting than have a trout blow up on a top water bait. And, and what I was fishing back then was just plain bass baits, like, you know, broke back rebels, uh, uh, tor- uh, tor- tiny torpedoes, things that yeah. you would, devil horses, things like that. I found that trout, uh, and getting started on that, the trout liked the, uh, like the, the minnow baits a lot better than anything with a blade on it. But the bigger trout, I catch bigger trout, and I think it's true with Daniel, with Daniel and Nussbaum, a great friend of ours, Dave Ladd and I, we all, we fish together, we share knowledge, and, you know, we always get excited. We go early in the morning and catch a big trout on top. That's what really, when I found out I could catch top water fish, trout, redfish on top water, that really, you know, started me, started me going after the, the targeting the bigger fish. And those red fins and devil horses, and I mean, those, you know, talking again with friends here and legends here on the local uh, Texas coast, Jay Watkins, I think, said it in his podcast as well. And I mean, these are obviously uh, to level to y'all's to your level of stature, excuse me, in terms of the angling um, legacy that you have. And that is it seems like everybody's first trout on top came on like a red fin or a, a jointed thunder stick or or a devil's horse or you know what I'm saying? Like a Smithwick rattling rogue or something with quick darting action right below the surface, right back to the top and boom, they just explode on it. And so it's interesting that, you know, from a, a tackle industry perspective, that that's a, that's a bait that really kind of pioneered more. So the, the, the top water fishing industry per se and bait manufacturing and, and development and things of that nature. But I, I find it very interesting that, it seems like all you guys started on that single kind of red fin or, or kind of minnow shaped bait that has a real quick diving, but stays just below the surface and those fish just respond to it. You know, this, this, this I've got uh, lures, uh, fish that are they're 40 years old. I still catch trout on them. They're just the old, the old time. It's, it's, it just works. Oh, of course. Yeah. Uh, well, first off <laughs> now it seems like more, uh, and it sucks because I threw so many of them away. Right. now um but i i mean all my scratched up lures and things that had chips and maybe holes in them even from you know just getting bit up so many times i'd put them in the trash now i've now gained a kind of 
better appreciation that maybe these are more the trophies than the actual trophies of the trout that I've caught on them themselves. Right. Because they, they tell a story. They, all those teeth marks, all those bites, all those scrapes, you know, they tell a story of, of years of persistence and, and use in, uh, I don't know. It's pretty cool. So having, you know, lures that are 40 plus years old, my God, that'd be awesome. Uh, I'd make like a huge, um, you know, like shadow box. So that's pretty cool. But, um, do you have like a, like a favorite fishing memory from either your past or even from present that really just resonates with you and just speaks to you? And just, if you can think of one memory, it's just that, do you have that favorite fishing memory? Well, I, I do, Chris, I have several of them, to be honest with you, but one that I, I went share them all. I mean, okay. you can share, share quite a few. I'm serious. <laughs> okay. I'm serious. Well, one of the, one of the, one of the trips, I think it was probably, we were going out, a friend of mine, we were going out of Somerville, and it was in uh, like the 1st of February. It was blowing probably 15 to 20, maybe 25 out the northeast, raining, mixed in with a little sleet, and the sleet got heavier during the day. And it, there's no need going fishing today. You are wasting your time. We went out, <laughs> and, and it probably ended up being probably the single best trout bite of big trout. Uh, got a little bank that it, it, it's, uh, it, water was pressing on the bank. It had about a four-foot relief. Time you come off the, the little shell rake, it dropped down about four feet. And I drifted through there, and I'm telling you. Anyway, long story short, uh, we we were fishing for a, a, a community fish fry. You got to understand, it's a long time ago, so we're going to keep fish. So, and the limit was 10. So, uh, we we kept uh, 10, I think we kept 12, 12 fish total is what it was. And the 12 trout now, the 12 fish Weighed sixty three pounds. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> it, I mean, it was awesome. just it. It was absolutely yeah. unbelievable bite. And it would you had to fish the baits, a tiny bait, little it's a little little bass or sassin was what I was using. Now Z Man makes it. It's called Ralph Shad. Now blue and silver, it looks just like mm-hmm. a glass minnow, but you had to fish it so slow. The water was cold. It was sleet and it was howling, but the big fish were just on. And what really got me with the story. Uh, He's passed on since, but uh, uh, his name was Alan Traylor. He was a doctor here in Charleston, a good friend of mine. And he brought a he brought a rod out there, Chris. I thought that he was going tuna fishing. It, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the reel weighed about a pound. He had it rigged up a twenty five pound test line, and I looked at that. I said, and then he was he was a, he was a good fisherman, but he just didn't have the right tackle for what we're going at. Yeah. So he broke off about three or four fish because the line was complete. It looked like you threw a slinky off the rod when the line came off and yeah. convinced him to use one of my rods. But that day we caught, we kept 12, but it, it, we released probably another 12. But it's just the best big trout bite. But it, it was all finesse. I mean, there was no blow up. There was no, there was no nothing other than just you had to tick. feel that little tick. And oh. So he says to me, he's, he didn't catch a lot of fish. He caught a couple of good fish. He says, well, what am I doing wrong? I said, I'm watching you miss bites. Uh, he, uh, I said, he said, what do you mean? I said, I'm watching you. You drift along. You're throwing down about 15 to 18 feet of water off the, off the ledge. And I'm seeing your line jump. That's a fish. He says to me, I'm in the sleet. I'm in the rain. The wind's blowing <laughs> like hell. And his oyster shells down there. And I'm supposed to feel a tick. I said, yeah. yeah. I said, if I got to explain it to you, you ain't going to catch nothing. Yeah. And so... That my pops, who hopefully uh, he listens to this, he will empathize. And so we have 
uh, and more so specifically he has, especially in his boat and folks that he's taken, friends. Because uh, honestly, when we fish together, it's just me and him. And so we rarely kind of take other people. And a few that we do are, are pretty good fishermen, right? And so they have pretty good quality equipment. But he's the point now where he's been super involved with his church and, and things of that nature. And right. so, you know, he I, I also worry about him. He's, seven, he's actually getting ready to be 75 years old. Um, but he's still going, pushing his, you know, taking his boat out by himself. But he's fishing some pretty big water by himself. And anyway, he's taking more and more people that aren't as uh, developed as anglers as others. And so, you know, the, the range of equipment is very, very different. And so some people have really good quality equipment and some people don't. And so he'll be, he's a great jig fisherman like yourself. And, you know, he'll get on a really good bite where it's just super subtle, slight tick, kind of somewhat deep water, seven, eight, seven to nine feet, you know, fishing like right. a little eighth ounce or a quarter ounce and just that slight tick. And, you know, he'd be just wearing them out and people will look at him and go, dude, what, like, what are you doing? He said, uh, you know, just looking at their equipment, you know, he's like, man, it's, it's really hard. You got to feel the bite. And so he'll eventually just give them his rod and then he'll pick up another one at his and then they'll finally feel it. And they're like, right. I had no idea like equipment could make that much of a difference. And so with regards to that, like what type of equipment is your go-to? Well, I fish and this, this goes back to another fish story years ago. I was yeah. up in up in Tennessee, and we fit jigging in 30, 35 feet of water for smallmouth with it with a guy. And I was I was just uh, I was probably 20, 29, 30 years old. Got an invitation. I can't even remember the guy's name, but he was a local local uh, guide there. And he is absolutely. I thought I was a fair fisherman. He's catching smallmouth down deep, and I'm watching everything he's doing. And he says to me, "You're not feeling that because you're fishing the wrong kind of handle." And I said, "What?" He said. What? So he was yeah. fishing a Tennessee handle. You ever see? What you know, is what, that? You, okay, it's 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 all I fished with ever since that day. It's, it's there's no real seat. <laughs> there's absolutely no real seat. You take you you build. I have the rods builder, and and a few people are building them now. I take electrical tape, and I mark mark where I want to put the reel, and I tape them to the handle. There's absolutely no deflection. There's no. Uh, you feel the bite. Anything touches it, you're gonna feel it. And it's just tape to the cork handle, but there's no real seat, no deflection. And I can't tell you how many, uh, my youngest son, Bill's custom rods. Now he's sold just a ton of them and they're popular. Everybody around town. I mean, they see it and they try it. If you've never tried it, you ought to let me send you one and you try it. It's amazing. It, is it a split grip real seat more or less? I mean, where your fingers are touching the blank? No, the, my, my hand is touching the cork. You wrap your hand around the cork. It's cork. The, the, the rod comes to the cork like a standard spinner rod. No reel seat, no metal, nothing to deflect it. You tape the reel to the cork. I ha I got to see it. I'll send I, you. I'll get Dave to send you some pictures. Please do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to see this. Okay. Yeah, can, no, I, I mean, I, I, so that's one of the things. So I use Laguna rods and or my bait cast. And then obviously uh, now I've kind of transitioned to some Waterloo, really, really nice rods. But um, on my, uh, my lattice stick, my lightweight or twos, my bait casters, they have these split grip kind of reel seats where no kidding, I palm my reel. And so my middle fingers are literally touching the blank, right? you know? And so, I mean, not only is my index finger touching the front end of the blank on top of the reel seat, but my middle fingers are also touching the blank internal to the actual, uh, 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 grip itself. And so, 
I mean, you talk about maximum sensitivity, anything bites. And not only that, it's a high quality blank. You feel a little tick. And I mean, it's basically running all the way through uh, to your fingers, right? And so you can Absolutely. feel that. But but you, you can't impress upon enough, especially if people are really serious about trout fishing, especially when you get in those super finesse nuanced bites where it's super subtle, especially deep water, you know, fishing Pontchartrain there uh, just out, outside of New Orleans. You know, you talk about a really diff- difficult fishery. You know, you've never really fished a really difficult fishery until you fish 25, almost straight up and down, vertical jigging these uh, giant bridge pilings, you know, on these on these bridges. But that's how I grew up fishing, and so I'm kind of used to it and accustomed to it and understanding the, the difference that good quality gear makes in feeling a bite and that's oh that's huge but that what an awesome story how much 67 pounds 66 pounds yes sir oh 63 63 63 okay yeah 12 i was 10 fish oh sorry 12 fish 12 63 um chris let me tell you on that uh, that tennessee handle i was telling you about that's on spinning reels now uh, i fish when i fish bait casters i do exactly what you do as far as palm and reel tell you a quick story one of my uh, real success story for, for helping somebody fish. I'm grandson, Alex. He is a senior in high school this year. He absolutely loves it. I mean, he's hooked. All of our children are fishermen and fisher people. They, they love it. But this boy, he's been bitten by the bug. So I did exactly what for him my grandfather did for me. When he was four years old, I was teaching him how to fish and started him casting. I never let him use anything but a bait caster. Mm-hmm. And it taught him the feel and the finesse. You know, you got cast control. When we first started out, I mean, it was old P-thrashers. I mean, you'd backlash every other time if you couldn't thumb it and control it. Yeah. But started teaching him with the bait caster. And I'll never forget, he was like 11, 12 years old. Had another friend with us that was trying to throw a bait caster in the wind. And, uh, and he backcast, backlashed almost every cast. And Alice looked at me and said, Papa. That man can't even throw a bait caster. He's a grown man. Can't, he can't throw a bait caster. <laughs> uh, but if you teach him from four years old, it, it sticks with Yeah. Him. Well, we'll say, I mean, um, my first bait casting combo that I got, I was in actually eighth grade. So it was 1995. And it was actually an Abu Garcia Black Max rod, seven foot, probably like a medium, moderate action at very... You know, looking back, it probably wasn't the greatest, but I saved up my money working at my dad's automotive shop and I went to boat stuff on Jefferson Highway and bought that Abu Garcia Black Max rod paired with an Abu Garcia 5600CI. It was also black. Man, that was like winning the lottery and I learned how to throw it. And I can honestly say my dad, even to that point, was still kind of a spin. He used to throw a bunch of spinning stuff. And... We would go out to Black Bay, we'd start catching some fish and, you know, he started to kind of transition a little bit more and kind of using bait casts. And obviously that's predominantly what we use. And it's funny because almost full circle now, I'm kind of shifting back more towards throwing more spin, spinning tackle just because of the the style of fishing I've been throwing, more power finesse, very, very small baits to some extent. I just did the thing on the trout eye or the Texas eye jig head and, and things like that, Ned rig, stuff like that. But um, he's still, you know, tried and true. He'll ne- he doesn't have a spinning rod. I think he has like one or two, maybe to throw a jerk bait here and there. But to get him to throw that, he won't. But that is a huge difference from oh, yeah. a jig fishing perspective. I will only throw a jig, like an actual like open style jig head, quarter ounce, whatever fishing around structure, 
fishing deep on a bait cast just because of the sensitivity aspect of it. If you learn like I did, Chris, with the bait casters, I'm a lot more accurate. I can I can get a, a bait caster. I can get it under a tree limb. I can get it around a dock. I can skip it across the water. Uh, we, we can go back to the old way of treetops like we did in the in the sev- late seventies. Just flipping, I use it like a flipping stick and just going in and get yeah. into the structure whenever you're fishing. I'm just a lot more accurate with a bait caster. I, I, can, I can fish a spin rod, of course, but just a lot more accurate. If I'm precise and, and looking at exact spots, I, I use a bait caster. Interesting. Okay. So what, what three, like what three things do you look for when you're actually pushing off going to target trout? I mean, do you look, what three things otherwise like bait, tide, water temperature, wind, whatever, are there three factors that you're like, you know what, these rise to the top, uh, when I'm getting ready to go. We we did we did that survey. I think we did that some time back. Whenever everybody around the country wrote what three things, what to me is, of course, I like moving water and it, the tides coming in and going out. I think it's right, important. It, it, yeah, is bait bait. You, know, you want you, of course you want to find bait, but if it's the surface temperature is cold, you're going to be down deep and you just got to look for them. But I, I think the, the the one thing I like is the barometric pressure. I like for trout. I'm talking about for trout. Okay. Yep. And I, I, hey, this is I, a I, trout only podcast, Mister Ralph. Okay. So you start <laughs> talking about redfish on here, we're gonna have to re, we're gonna have to basically cut yeah. this puppy short and, and head elsewhere. No, I'm joking, yeah. sir. Go That's ahead. All, I'm sorry. It's all good. <laughs> it's, but I think barometric pressure is is what I yeah st- steady weather, a stable barometer. Uh, fish. I like to fish right ahead of a front when the barometer is rising. Get a good a rising barometer. Uh, and then when it tops out, that's that's great. What I, th- I found that the most difficult time is whenever you get a, a low pressure comes through, and and, the, and you can just you can feel it when you're out there, and the barometric pressure changes, and if it really drops. But if you you're there a, a, a day ahead, a few hours ahead uh, of the rising barometer before it goes, I think that's the most important thing for trout. Uh, Dave Flad and I, and, and some of the local guys have been working with us too. This minor and major uh, uh, moon phase. We have been doing that for the last year, looking at it, try to be in a spot that we have uh, we have caught uh, big trout, large trout, yes sir, uh, dur- during the major moon phase. And I'm telling you, I really think that there's a lot more needs to be that I need to learn about that. But that 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 seems to work too. So oh you, we, so I, I've been putting a lot more stock into it, and that's something that I've definitely put a lot more emphasis on over the last few years now um, in terms of targeting big fish and being at the right spot at the right time. I'd like to take a small break to sincerely thank our podcast sponsors. As you know, we're a brand about sharing the passion and pursuit of trophy speckled trout, as well as our conservation. Fortunately for us, Mirror Lore, Texas Custom Lures, and the original Custom Corky support that same passion, which is evident through the support of this podcast. Simply put, without these brands, none of this will be possible. And we're incredibly appreciative, and we hope you are too. Now, let's get back to the discussion. All right, so I guess if, if you're talking about um, so lunar, that would be your third, right? Yes, sir. Um, so right now you got water movement, you got barometric pressure, and so lunar. So those are the three factors that you would consider probably the you know, that you would look for. Now, what, what on the water, I guess that would be external to outside of the water, maybe pre-trip planning and things of that nature. What right. three things on the water do you look for? Well, I like to look for water moving around structure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, aside from water movement, but yeah, the, uh, 
What about the importance of bait? Do you look for bait or any, or anything like that? Or yeah, you 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 do if you see birds diving, and you you need to pay attention to what kind of bird. Everybody said, "What are birds are that?" Well, what kind of birds were they? Uh, mm-hmm. I don't. Okay, like we got so we got regular seagulls diving, and they got this little small mouth. They probably picking up blast minnows and small small stuff off the top. That's great. The pelicans diving, they picking up you know bigger bait, menhaden or mullet or something like that. So that I pay attention to where the activity's at. If you yep. look up a creek and you got uh, you got four or five birds flying around that creek, that, that's that's an excellent t- sign to, to go up in there and look at it. And I would say almost to some extent, it may go back to your so lunar thing. Uh, because again, cows are feeding, the fish are feeding, That's exactly um, right. you know, you start seeing a lot more activity in the air. You start seeing some more activity, squirrels kind of in trees, starting to bark at each other or whatever it is right here in the Texas coast. You might see some, same, 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 some same. right. Yeah. Right. I mean, all of a sudden now, uh, Hey, the, the feeds happening. And then aside from that, yeah, if you do have birds diving on bait, that's obviously a really key indication that those fish are literally right there. So, okay. Well, one, let me mention one other thing here. Like get asked a lot, when the fishing is slow and like say we we're at, we're you know into a front or, or or everything's not right. What what do you go to when it's really difficult? What do you go to? I said, well, go to a very small bait. Go to, go to something just uh, you know, as small as you can cast, and work it slow. And if you think you're fishing slow enough, slow down. Get tight to structure. Get right up in the dock, get under a dock, get on a treetop, get on a stump, get on oyster shells where there's some, there's some relief. And it's just my theory. I think that when it slows down and the fish are kind of lethargic, they get out of the current. They're going to be behind the, an oyster rake where they can just kind of meander and not, not have to expend a lot of energy swimming. And that's work for me to fish heavy structure during a, a, a pressure drop. Uh, when the fishing slow and ever this, this ice cold, Fish small bait slow, and if you think you're fishing slow enough, slow down. Interesting. Okay, I would, you know, thinking about it across, you know, or applicability here across the Texas coast, you know, with regards to tight the structure, you know, obviously, actually, y'all were recently down here, right, down in Port Mansfield. Yeah, Dave and I with came Wayne. Down. How, so, what'd you think of that? That was a. It was very. I'd never been to that part of the country to fish, and it was really unique. But we got, we got. Uh, we had some terrible weather. We got we couldn't have picked any where it was blowing. I mean, it was blowing a gale, so we actually only got to got to fish one day. Uh, but we absolutely loved it. What what amazed me, uh, if you had a, a, a ten inch relief on the bottom, he called that a drop. That's right. <laughs> you know, that's it's a, crazy, right? You know, it, I could I couldn't adjust. I said, you know, a drop to us is six to eight feet. I mean, not not you know, and that really amazed. But if you learn to read that, that's that's the way we caught fish, and he did a good job and put us on fish. Dave had his personal best down there, great trout. And uh, so anyway, we, we really enjoyed the trip and we had to fight the weather. Yeah, but Chris worked his butt off trying to put us on fish and he did a good job. And we waited the entire time and it, it was all good. That was, uh, I think it was Wayne Davis uh, that y'all were down there with. And yeah, looking at uh, Dave's biggest fish, the citation fish that he caught, a beautiful, beautiful trout. And so that's obviously what spawned the, at least for me, the Texas eye and using the Texas eye was his uh, success that he had on it uh, down here on the Texas coast. But I wanted to ask you that because, you know, again, talking about fish and tight, the structure with smaller baits, you've kind of alluded to it a little bit is that one, it's an expansive area with a pretty large flat. You've experienced it firsthand and, and the subtle nuances of bottom contour and makeup 
um, are really different, right? As opposed to, again, fish in Pascagoula or fish in Charleston areas, or actually even over in like the Banana River in the Florida side where you are targeting docks and you are fishing, you know, close to structure and mangrove stretches and things of that nature. And so it's really interesting that you can get a little bit of that relief. And so you can get away with maybe being a little bit less accurate, but I would say definitely the downsizing component to that is huge. You know, there's been a lot of, I've put a lot of stock in downsizing a lot, especially when that, that weather doesn't necessarily cooperate or it gets high pressure or things, or that bite does slow down. But by downsizing, you're obviously just increasing what we'll eat versus targeting something more specific in the eating, i.e., you know, a 13 or 14 inch trout, just trying to get bit in a small, small bait versus trying to really target a bigger fish in the eating when those, when that bite is happening, you know? So I did want to ask you though, Mr. Ralph. So if you could cherry pick or draw the best day or, or your ideal scenario for targeting a trophy trout, what would that look like? It would it'd be a day whenever the wind, you had some breeze, a light breeze, uh, overcast. Uh, I love to fish rain and clouds. That, that doesn't discourage at all. Uh, have a have a, a higher tide. Have your high tide early in the morning, like, uh, you know, 5, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, so you can get out into the shallower water with an overcast day and fish top water uh, close to a channel. That's one thing we have a real advantage here, uh, and we have a lot of areas like this. We can We don't have to run. Like, like we did in Texas for cross flats for, you know, several miles. We in the river channel and we, you follow the channel, you see where it kicks in close. So I like, I like to fish shallow water whenever I'm doing this shallow water is close to the channel. You see the channel water kicking almost to the shore and then there's a flat behind it. To me, that's an ideal place to look an ideal place to fish. Uh, so they, they can get back in the deep water again if they have to, or if t- low tide, they drop back into the, into the, you know, the, the, deep rolls yes sir i'd like to have a just like i said a light breeze just enough to put a, a slight ripple not much slight ripple on the water uh, and have have them have the morning with leave my telephone at home and have the morning to myself that'd be ideal right and a, and a good cigar right i got to have a good cigar that is, <laughs> no i got to have a That's... breakfast cigar or lunch cigar <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. so i wanted to ask you though like time of year do you have a, a specific preference yeah you know it's it's in the, the targeting, if you're targeting bigger trout, and of course, you know, with, it, with this time of the year, the spring is when we see the bigger trout. But Chris, my favorite time to fish is the dead of winter. I like I like December, December, January, February. Uh, at two, a cu- couple of reasons. Uh, just, just, you don't have near the crowd out there fishing. You got you got plenty. Uh, you make yourself slow down so you can really get out and, 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 and work an area. I'm used to putting my foot in a trolling motor this time of the year. Like the old bass fisherman, the running gun, just the day day flat. You always Ralph, slow down. You're going too fast. Putting my foot in that trolling motor, looking for that that strike, you know. But the wintertime, colder weather, you have to slow down and fish the small baits. It's more finesse fishing. I don't catch as many big fish in the wintertime as we do. We catch a few, but uh, I really enjoy uh, the piece of it. And and if if it's 45 degrees, 40 degrees. You know, we, we have fairly mild winters here. We don't get we don't get many days in the, in the teens or anything, but uh, that would be an ideal day for me. So to sum it up, um, or to basically summarize, a high tide in the morning, falling all day, overcast or kind of some sort of like um, rain or mist or, or things of that nature, 
close to channels with deep water access, so a flat uh, nearby a, a deeper water access channel, some wind uh, to go ahead and break up some of that bay complexion and things of that nature. In the dead of winter, roughly, would be kind of your ideal, but obviously for targeting a bigger fish in the springtime there in the, in the Charleston complex, and then a breakfast and lunch cigar. There you go. That would that would take care of Chris. Now the one thing on that winter fishing, we don't we don't do much top water fish. Once that water temperature, once it gets down, you know, below sixty, these fish they 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 they're a little slower. They're not going to chase the top water bait. Once once the the mullet and the menhaden and things that once the bait starts disappearing, our top water fishing slows down. You still catch one occasionally, but it slows down. So then we go to the finesse fishing with the with the smaller jigs, smaller jig heads, and the, the lighter weights. I got you. No, that's good. And, and so is that your favorite style of fishing is finesse fishing? I know you've mentioned a number of times and I know you have your asphyxiation with top water, but I mean, is your yeah. preferred, no kidding. Like, yeah, if somebody, if somebody to Ralph, you're going to get to go fishing, you can take, uh, no matter what time of the year, you can have one bait, uh, you can have one rod, one bait. I'd take ultralight tackle, uh, th- three sixteenths trout eye jig and, and the little, like the, the Z man, the jerk, little jerk shad Z man. Okay. So that was going to lead into kind of my next question. You come somewhat answered it, I guess, but I mean, what, no kidding, like what three lures? So obviously you just mentioned three sixteenth ounce uh, Z-Man uh, with the Ralph Shad's color or? or- the, the Ralph Shad's color. And we, we vary, we work with, we work with Daniel real close and his staff. They do a great job and we, we're partners with them on it. And we try a lot of different baits. That's probably the oldest colors. There's the blue and silver. Now we we've had several. We've had several really good ones this uh, this, this spring so far. And and Daniel's very he and his staff very creative. We talk about it. We meet a couple times a year and talk about what he's what he's playing and what we're doing and look at the colors and that sort of thing. But the, I think the one thing that really I got to give him a plug on this if you don't mind the the Z Man product. We built our our jig heads and and we mm-hmm. built. A, double hook keepers on it and and that z-man bait if you if you cast it let it land to the bottom it it comes up it stands the tail will float it floats up mm-hmm. so if you've ever can imagine chris you're in a creek and you see in minnows when they when they are moving along the bottom they they, they stand on their head when they eat they kind of stand up and uh and if you look in the real small bait like what gave me the our, us the idea originally on these plugs all you see is a dot spot that's their eye yeah. But if you if you look at the way they feed, the head is down and they they move about two or three inches at a time. So if I take that small bait from Z Man and, and our, our trout eye, three sixteenths is what I that's that's my go to. Move it, move it just a couple inches at a time. Fish it slow across the bottom. Yeah. So that's one. So your your other, if you could again kind of break it down to three, two would be a top water. Do you have a specific brand preference? Uh, what we we've been using the, the Skitter, Skitter V Skitter Walker we've been okay. using those a lot. Uh, I think Skitter V is, is was the one that came out here about a year and a half two years ago, mm-hmm. and that would I would have to say that was probably our our go to top water bait now. Why is that? It just has a tighter it, action. The, act, the action is on yeah. it, you, and it, the V bottom you get uh, reflect you get a good reflection off of it uh, whenever you. Uh, you move it, you can see color flashing, mm-hmm. and that that helps us. And right now we've been we've been fishing the, the blue and blue and silver bottom has been a good color for us, the mullet mm-hmm. color. But uh, the action is what I think is I'd say would be our best top water. I see. Now the third would be, it, you know, it's just something that I do I do very little of, but in the dead of winter when it gets cold, is 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 your your uh, uh, suspend base little little drop mm-hmm. down a little small. Uh, and the smaller the bait, the better. 
like a little mirror lore or something mirror, like that. A little mirror lore. Mirror yeah, exactly. And let it let it gotcha. drop and fish it. Like I say, fish it real slow. You, it doesn't get so cold that that's the only thing we fish. But it, it, as I, if I had to pick three, that'd be my third would be a suspend bait to go there. So I want to transition a little bit, and this will kind of be the last kind of portion of the show uh, because we're we're a brand about big trout and conservation. We've been at this for about seven years now, and obviously we've just been trying to really well it started with a blog right my blog and never really knew it would kind of transition to this by any stretch of the imagination but it was really all brought about by just having this passion man and just about having or catching and targeting big big fish big trouts and then obviously conserving them right take what you need release the rest and doing your part uh, of safeguarding resource for future uh, years to come and so looking recently you and Dave and I think more so Dave than anybody uh, but I think both of y'all partnered in terms of starting something called the release over 20 can you uh, explain a little bit to some of the folks that are out there about kind of this release over 20 initiative we're yes sir it, it was started with Dave Dave gets a call from the CCA up in North Carolina and we started talking about it that's your spawning fish that's, that is the resource of the future. I mean, that's, that's we, we don't save them. We're not going to have them. And we decided that, that would be, be something worthwhile. So they, Dave has, has done all the legwork and the hard work on it. But we're encouraging all the local guys. We've got several of them signed on with us now that they, they've agreed they're going to do it with their clients. It, keep what you want to eat. Release those bit those big girl trout. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to populate. They're going to bring it back for us. They're going to save it for us. Uh, and, that's we we got a, a program going now where we we're going to send out like some gift packages we're going to we're going to send out some hats when you sent when you sign up to fish with us and we're just trying to get everybody to think about that release over 20. Uh, no and that's cool so and i wanted to bring that up and and i appreciate you kind of plugging that now so for everybody else who doesn't know and i'll do this for you if you don't mind mr ralph and that is you know get out there on instagram get out there on Facebook and check out the release over 20 uh, initiative that they have kind of join the pages or, you know, subscribe or whatever it is. And obviously if you, if that's something that's part of your kind of angling values then go ahead and support that. Right. But I wanted to kind of, I wanted to bring that up because uh, somebody, and again, going back to the very first part of the show, somebody who's been at this since the mid sixties, um, how much have you seen in terms of the fishery change, you know, from that time to now? Well, you know, Chris, it's, it's, we have had a, a decline. There's no, there's no question about that. Uh, now, when I was fishing in the day, it was, you got to understand, everybody had a freezer and conservation was something I couldn't even spell back then. Uh, didn't, I didn't go out and just rape the resource, but we kept fish. And I think the worst enemy the absolute worst enemy of a fish, any type of fish, is freezers. And I'm guilty of it. As a young man, I'd go back, I'd catch a cooler full of fish, I'd go home, I would cut them up, lay them up, freeze them. Three, four, six months later, they'd have freezer burn, I'd throw them out. And, and that's yeah. God's truth. I think, we, I think we've kind of changed that mindset is to get, keep what you want to eat. We, we, yep. I love to eat fish. My family does. My grand, everybody loves fish. We'll keep three, four fish, whatever feed us that night. Everything else we put back. And, and Take if, what you need and release the rest, right? Absolutely, I mean, absolutely. What you know, and and it, God, we we Dave and I both, and and Dave has has been been a, been a great partner and a great inspiration to me. We we really try to handle that fish, gentle if we're going to release it. But you know, 
you damage it or hurt it. We, we hate to get one that gets hooked inside and that sort of thing. So all that helps. But if you put a fish back, it maybe had a little bit of blood. If you put him back, he's got a chance. If you put him in that live well, he's got no chance. So well, yeah, in the ice chest, absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, so, if he's if he's in an ice chest, there's a zero percent chance that, that fish right, will survive, a, right? A, absolutely. And, And that's another thing is, I mean, we would get people, you know, submitting stuff for the citation programs or submitting citations like, man, it kills me that I had to kill the fish. But, you know, she was bleeding. I'm like, dude, like if she was bleeding or if she was like dead and you had her or she was really kind of close to it, don't feel bad, man. I mean, like it's it's okay that stuff happens, you know, obviously you did what you could and that's okay, you know, but on the same token is just be more mindful next time. And that's that's part of fishing. Right. Is And so I. I bring a, a, a forever last wade and live well just for that simple fact is that, hey, if I get on a pretty decent bite, I'm looking for a big bite and I hook a 20-inch fish right in the throat and like literally one of those trebles catches her right there and she's not going to make it, I, I'm not going to release her just to say I released her, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to yeah. harvest that fish because that's that's responsibility well, of of being responsible. That's, that's actually part of conservation is really taking that uh, versus – you know, just releasing her to only know that she's pretty much going to go ahead and pass away. Right. But on the same token is, yeah, just do what you can, right. To, to take care of that resource. Well, you, that, that means you can release the next one. You've, you've got, yep. you've got your dinner, you know? Yeah, sure. Of course. Yeah. No, absolutely. That's a good way of putting it. But I, I wanted to bring that up because, you know, having that conversation with my dad, him on a podcast, Doc Bob Weiss, you know, Jay Watkins, all these guys that have been on Keith Nuttall from, from Virginia, understanding that there has been some sort of impact to a fishery long-term that we've had as anglers across various complexes, across various estuaries that, hey, look, I mean, what was once status quo about, you know, measuring trips by wheelbarrows full of fish down in Venice, Louisiana, um, that that may not necessarily be the case anymore, right? And it's not to say that that wasn't cool or isn't cool or it doesn't sell trips or it doesn't sell trips. I mean, that's irrelevant. The point is, is that if we continue down that, I mean, I think we're going to see this decline continue to persist versus actually change the course and change the narrative of like, hey, now our fishery is actually getting better, right? We always talk Absolutely. about the good old days. Yeah. Well, you know, we the thing is, Chris, and, and I go back for, for you, like guys like your dad and myself, there, there was nobody around teaching us that. We didn't understand mm-hmm. that. It was it was an unlimited resource. We could we could go offshore out here and just just catch snapper, blackfish. If we wanted bottom fish, we could catch you know anything. I mean, the ocean was just it was just prolific, and and it right. wasn't a con, it wasn't a concern. So you know these these got, got great memories of it. But you know, luckily we've learned and we got we got and we've got DNR doing their job, and and they are they are doing a good job here in South Carolina, and that we we are. Uh, supporting them and trying to help them any way we can to, to get the, to get the word out. But I want you to share something with your dad when you, and this day, we did this the other day and Dave was talking about, about a quote and it's just re- relate this to trout. Okay. If you don't have parents, there's a good chance you aren't going to have any children. <laughs> That's very true. Yeah. So t- tell your daddy can use that when he's just. I, I will. <laughs> I will. I sure will. That's a damn good quote actually. Oh my God. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, but it's guys like y'all, right? It, it, it's legends in a game. And I'm, my dad's no, not a legend. He's a legend to me, right? But absolutely. Um, but on the same token, is it's guys who are very, very uh, involved, have um, a tremendous footprint in that local community, in that local fishery. And it's guys like y'all that are actually saying, hey, I've been there in the heyday. And I, I, I've, y'all are kind of championing the efforts to kind of come back to, 
this kind of take what you need, release the rest kind of mentality or this release over 20, which is again, you know, harvesting isn't terrible. It's actually a good thing, but on the same token is just be mindful, right? Absolutely. And so we, I appreciate it. And I, I mean, I, I told the guys at Speckle Truth, I'm, I'm definitely all in. I've told Dave that as well. I'll definitely support, you know, kind of that initiative, but I wanted to bring it up in a podcast because I know you've been kind of an instrumental figure behind that as well. So Chris, we do appreciate, we, we do appreciate also everything that you do and what you're trying to get accomplished. And uh, we're big fans and uh, big supporters and anything that we can do on this area. If you need anything else from us, just let us know. We'll, we'll be there. Yeah. Try to do it. Will do Mr. Ralph. I really appreciate it. And I know Dave's probably listening back there. And so I want to say it, for people have probably heard me say Dave a lot during this podcast. And right. I'll say Dave Flad from I strike fishing and Mr. Ralph from I strike fishing. Uh, being here on the podcast. So Mr. Ralph, thanks again, sir, for being uh, on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, you, you're very welcome, Chris. I appreciate the time and being and being able to, to, to do it with you. Pass on to your father. You and him got a fishing trip a day. Anytime you get to Charleston, you got a place to stay and a boat to ride on. Hey, I'm down with that. That'd be awesome, sir. I, I, I actually, I want to come back through there. I, I fished there from 2006 to 2009. I called that my home waters back then. And you know, I've learned a lot <laughs> since then, right. um, and I'd be interested to kind of come back and try to tackle some of that fishery a little bit now, kind of knowing, you know, some different techniques and some different approaches and things of that nature. So I, I'll, I'll take you up on that. I definitely sure. would love that. I'll definitely will be back up in the Carolinas at some point, sir. So uh, I'll do that. Thanks, Mr. Thank, Ralph. Thank, thank you, Chris. Appreciate it. All right. Hey, for everyone else who stuck around uh, listening to the Speckle Truth podcast, we really appreciate it. Again, I got to throw tremendous... Uh, thanks and gratitude out to uh, Mirror Lore, Texas Custom Lures, and the original Custom Corky, as well as Mossy Oak Fishing for sponsoring the podcast. We really appreciate that. And without them, obviously none of this happens. So uh, I just want to, again, thanks Mr. Ralph and thank Dave Flad from iStrike Fishing for joining me today. And I want to remind everyone else, uh, always take what you need, release the rest, tight lines, and God bless. Take care.